Well, this morning, uh, B.J. Edwards, along with uh, Tim and Rhonda Hanawell, are with the youth group. And they are away for three days, really grateful for the ministry of the Hanawells and B.J. and and, uh, spending time with these young people. I remember before they left, I dropped Nathan off on Friday, and I looked into one of the vans, and I said, what am I going to do? There's not going to be anyone in the first two rows. And I think it was one of the Shive girls said, well, you can just talk to Abby. Well, Abby's doing PowerPoint. So <laughs> that's what I'm left with. I love interacting with young people. And I, I wish you could see the, the expressions on their faces as they respond to the word of God. Um, I wish you could see the notes they take. Um, we have a really fine group of young people here at Christ Fellowship. Well, this morning... I want to begin in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Of course, we recognize, acknowledge, and affirm that the triune God created all things. And as we stress this morning in the class that I taught, there is indeed a distinction between the Creator and the creature. Anytime we blend the creator with the creature, we end up with trouble. That's the polite way of stating it. Let me state it a bit more abruptly. Whenever you blend the creator with the the creature, you end up with heresy. You end up in a, a pantheistic worldview. You end up in a panentheistic worldview. You end up where scripture never intends for us to go. And so the triune God created all things. We're told in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. He places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Edom and he gave them the freedom to enjoy this unbelievable garden. In Genesis 1.31, God saw that everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning And the sixth day, we affirm with the writings of Scripture that God's creation is good. It is a good creation. And of course, we have the divine directive that unfolds in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. You see, God gave Adam two very specific responsibilities in the garden. Adam was instructed to work and to keep. To work and to keep. To work means to, to make things grow. Some of you have a, a desire to cultivate things and make things grow. That is a part of the creation mandate. That is a good thing. Adam was also instructed to keep. That is to keep and protect and sustain progress that has already been achieved. And here we have the, the twin responsibilities of leadership and stewardship that were placed upon Adam. Then I want you to see the crucial imperative. You see, since God is the creator of all things, he therefore has the final authority. You put it this way, God calls the shots. He has the last word on absolutely everything. And so, as you might expect, God places parameters before Adam and Eve in the garden. He said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you will surely die. Let me remind us this morning that we are talking about real historical characters who emerged in time and space. This is not a fictional account. This is not make-believe. Adam and Eve were real historical characters, and God makes it abundantly clear to eat of anything you want in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. March forward to Genesis chapter 3, and we come to the point of the, the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the slithering serpent in the garden. Eve is confronted with that slithering serpent. Ultimately, Adam partakes of the fruit that God told him, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, and plunged all of humanity, including you and I, into a course of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In the book of Ezekiel, we read, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. And then we all know very well in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says that the penalty, the wages of sin is, is death. And this should come as no surprise to any of us because we are told originally in Genesis chapter 2 that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. For the wages of sin is death. Last week in our passage in the Gospel of John, we, we ended at the point where Jesus was admonishing the Pharisees. He told them in chapter 8 verse 21, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Sin. There's that three-letter word that I have found many Christians are afraid to utter. I have been in counseling settings where someone will describe what they have done and it's, a, it's something grievous in the eyes of a holy God. And Doreen and I have confronted on numerous occasions the, the language of, I made a mistake. I goofed up. It was an error in judgment. My bad. And the way I confront this every time, and it is not popular, is to say, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error in judgment. It wasn't just a screw up. It wasn't just my bad. It was sin. It was sin. Many believers are utterly afraid to utter that three-letter word. Additionally, this three-letter word is despised among the unbelieving people. Perhaps because they enjoy participating in it so much. I think we would all confess sin is fun. Sin is fun. But the scripture warns us there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. The scripture says that sin is fun for a season. See, sin is not just unpopular in our culture. It's not only unpopular in, 
in churches. It's unpopular in schools and businesses and popular culture in general. Sin is also misunderstood. You see, most people view sin as as a mere misunderstanding or mere wrongdoing. Like I say, I, I messed up. Well, in the shorter catechism, question number 14, we're asked the question. The question is posed, what exactly is sin? And here is the answer that is framed for us in the shorter catechism. Sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Later in that shorter catechism, question number 19, we are told that all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. May those words continue to to be preached from this pulpit as we explain what sin truly is. May those words that describe the essence of sin be taught to our children in jam. May the essence of sin be taught to our young people, our junior hires and our high school students. And the reason is this. It's important that we get this straight because sin has separated us from God. Herman Bavnik, great reformed theologian, says, quote, All mankind is involved in sin. Sin was a revolt against God, an uprising, a fall in the true sense, which was decisive for the whole world. The fall took the world on a road away from God toward wickedness and corruption. It was an unspeakably great sin, a fall in every sense of the word. And Bavnik refers to that original sin in the garden. You see, sin, sin guarantees judgment. It guarantees God's righteous judgment. Indeed, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 21, you will die in your sin. One writer puts it this way. He says, to die with one's sin, unrepented and unatoned, is the supreme disaster. Yet we live in a community. We live in a state and we live in a country where sin is often not addressed. And if sin is addressed, the remedy in many cases is not made clear. And here this author makes it abundantly clear that if sin is unrepented of and unatoned for, that indeed is the supreme disaster. And so there is a key point I want to leave with you today that I would encourage you to wrestle with. And that is this, without Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and subsequent ascension, you too will die in your sin. Without banking on Jesus' sacrificial work on Calvary's cross, you too will die in your sin. Now, the Pharisees' exchange with Jesus reveals something about their hearts. Last week we learned something about their hearts, and the exchange or the the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees will continue in our passage today. 
And what we will see is that it reveals a heart that is diametrically opposed to God. It reveals a heart that pays no regard for truth or God or the gospel. And ultimately, what we will see today, as we open up to John chapter 8, we will see that the Pharisees hate God, that they reject God. And so the title of the message this morning is The Seething Heart. The Seething Heart. I want to invite you to turn once again to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is the 30th message in our study of the Gospel of John, and we have a long way to go. Isn't it good? I can't wait. Will you stand with me as we read together John chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. And so the Jews said, speaking of Jesus... Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but Speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, it was only a few days ago that all hell broke loose. In the streets of Baltimore, as an angry mob of people reacted with a great deal of hostility to the untimely death of Freddie Gray. As we all know, buildings were destroyed, cars were born, hordes of people looted businesses, destroyed those businesses, and both citizens and police officers, unfortunately, were injured in this riotous Malays. And as I thought about this so-called cacophony of chaos in the streets of Baltimore, my mind actually went from the streets of Baltimore to John chapter 8. I was immediately drawn to the passage before us that we will study today. And the reason is this, is as we've just read this passage, you, you will see very quickly that there is no violence in this passage. There is no looting. There are no fires. There are no Molotov cocktails. There, there's no looting or fighting or violence of any kind. There's no yelling. There are no harsh words. In fact, it's really quite the opposite. It's actually very civil. And the passage before us offers a peaceful exchange between the dominant religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees, 
But despite the peaceful exchange that we read in John chapter 8, verses 22 to 30, you will find very clearly a one-sided war. It is a battle. You know, a seething heart can go undetected for days, for weeks, for months. In fact, uh, I found that a seething heart can actually go undetected for years. But like termites in a house who will go undetected for a season, sometimes days or weeks or months or even years, the malicious intent of those nasty little critters one day will surface. The same holds true, you see, for a seething heart. You can hide a seething heart for, for only so long. And so this morning as we study together, I, I want you to see the symptoms of a seething heart. Represented by the man on the screen who was raising his fist against the police department in the city of Baltimore. I want you to see the symptoms of a seething heart as we expose this sin of the Pharisees. Perhaps God will expose something in your heart that needs to come into the light of day. As I see it and as I read John chapter 8 verses 22 to 30, I see five symptoms of a seething heart. I want to walk through those symptoms with you and draw some practical application as we draw to a close. The first symptom of a seething heart is found in verse 22. In verse 22, you recall the context is that Jesus had just a moment prior said to the Pharisees, You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 22. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. That leads us to the first symptom of a seething heart. That is a seething heart disregards impending judgment. Do you see it? It may not be clear at first glance, but Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You will die in your sin. I can't think of anything more serious for the Lord Jesus Christ to say to the Pharisees, you will die in your sin. You would think that a Pharisee who had any amount of tenderness in his heart would have said, die in my sins? What? Why? How? Who? How does this work, Jesus? And notice they don't even respond. They say, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. You see, they actually thought that when Jesus uttered these words, he was planning to commit suicide. Jesus was planning to kill himself. And in a Jewish worldview, what you have to understand is if a person kills himself, where does he go? He goes straight to hell. And so the twin, the twin, uh, uh, Truth, so to speak, in the Pharisees' mind were Jesus, first of all, they think he's going to kill himself and he's going to go to hell. That's why he says, where I come, where I go, you can't come with me. All the while, they ignore the impending judgment. They ignore the impending judgment. Now, there, there's a pattern of this seething heart, the seething heart that disregards impending judgment in Scripture. We know very clear that Adam ignored impending judgment. 
We've seen it already this morning. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve disregarded impending judgment. You remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uzzah knew that it was unpermissible to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And yet what happens when these men are transporting the ark, by the way, in an unworthy manner, that's for another time and another place, and one of the men stumbled and the ark was going to hit the mud and the dirt and the grime and the ground, and Uzzah, being the righteous man that he was, certainly he wouldn't want the ark of God to touch the ground, but he failed to realize that his sinful hand was no better. And so he reached out to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And what do we find happens? He dies. God kills him. He ignored impending judgment. Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 6, they were promiscuous. They were guys who who made it around town, so to speak. They too ignored impending judgment and they paid with their very lives. We find King Solomon who ignored impending judgment time and time again throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And here in John chapter 8, we find the Pharisees, they utterly ignore impending judgment. That is the first mark of a seething heart that emerges in this passage. I want you to see the second mark of a seething heart that's also in verse 22. And that is that a seething heart is drowning in self-righteousness. You see, the self-righteous person is utterly deceived. This person is under the false impression that my good deeds will get me to heaven. I will go to church faithfully. I will give of my tithes and my offerings faithfully. I will involve myself in ministry. I will climb the ladder to heaven and hope that God will accept me. Such a notion, of course, is clearly contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. The Bible tells us this about the Pharisees. They would travel over land and sea to win one convert. Yet, the Lord Jesus Christ accuses them of hypocrisy. We see that the Pharisees would tithe mint and dill and cumin. As one preacher quite wittingly noted, they tithed out of their spice racks. Yet Jesus told them that they neglected the weightier matters of the law, namely justice and mercy and faithfulness. In Matthew twenty three twenty eight, we read this. Jesus says, so you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, these religious leaders who look good and smell good and walk good and talk good, They were the theologians of the day. They were drowning in man-made self-righteousness. They lived in a self-imposed system of man-made laws whereby they sought to earn favor in the eyes of a holy God. Listen, I see it all the time. And it usually happens at Starbucks. It usually happens at the woods where you talk to people. If you died tonight, on what basis would God allow you into heaven? I would encourage you to ask that question. Get comfortable asking that question and prepare yourself for the answers that you will receive. I had a young man 
I've already shared the story, but seated around the table upstairs in my study, I asked him, if you die tonight, on what basis would God allow you into heaven? And he said three things. I read my Bible as often as I can. I try to go to church and I'm a good person. And he was horrified when I said, may I be honest with you? He said, certainly. I said, you know, your answer is no different than any Muslim all around the world. The only difference is a Muslim would say they read the Quran faithfully. That answer will lead a person to the gates of hell. Man-made self-righteousness will never lead a person to heaven. Romans 10.3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. One writer puts it this way, The scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of self-righteous human achievers. Those who follow their examples and trust in good works, morality, and religious activities to save them, who refuse to admit their own ability to contribute anything to saving themselves, cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner, will likewise die in their sins. The writer goes on to say, the self-righteous will never see heaven. See, a seething heart is drowning in self-righteousness. But there's a third mark that we see in verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. You see, Jesus draws a contrast. He's from above. The Pharisees are from below. Where I am going, you cannot come, as he said in verse 21. And so here we see that a seething heart is distracted by worldly pursuits. A seething heart is distracted by worldly pursuits. The word world in the New Testament is a word that many of you are familiar with. If you studied cosmology in college, you understand what the word world means. The word world comes from the Greek word cosmos, and it refers to the ungodly world system, the world that, quite, quite frankly, is diametrically opposed to God, his word, and his kingdom. We will see that this worldly system is evil to the core. The word of God says in First John, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the cosmos, the world. To make this very plain, let me share a few things that you're all familiar with. You hear this in the world in which you live. Phrases like this, live for today, which is the essence of existentialism. Live for today, live for the moment. How about this one? If it feels good, do it. That is the philosophy of the world. Break the rules. It's okay so long as you don't get caught. Truth is a relative thing. You know, pastor, it's great if you believe that about the Bible. It's great if you believe that about salvation. That's true for you, 
but it doesn't work for me. That's the philosophy of relativism. And relativism is invading not only the world system, relativism is invading the church of Jesus Christ. This side of the congregation can believe one thing. This side of the congregation can believe another. And we're all right. Let's just give peace a chance. That's what we know as ecumenicalism, where we put up with heresy, where we put up with heresy in people from two different groups who disagree on a given proposition. Truth is a relative thing. Another statement that you hear in the marketplace of ideas is ethics are in the eyes of the beholder. And that's just the evil twin stepsister of relativism. When one says ethics is in the eye of the beholder. You know, the, I wish Anna, our, my friend Anna was here from Germany, foreign exchange student. If you had not had a chance to meet Anna, you need to get to know her. She is a bright young lady. I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know her, and I wish she were here so she could uh, hear the German word uttered forth from the pulpit today. It's the word zeitgeist. Not just have a ring to it, zeitgeist. And zeitgeist means the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age. The world system, you see, is at war with God, the word of God, and his kingdom. That is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. James chapter 4 speaks to that zeitgeist. James 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Because the, the world is at war with God and God's word and his kingdom, it should not surprise us when we hear about the so-called homosexual agenda that has been ramped up over the last three or four years, or should I say the last three or four months. Have you noticed a difference? That should not surprise us. That is the zeitgeist. That is the spirit of the world. When we hear abortion rights activists getting aggressive and vocal, that should not surprise us. That is the zeitgeist. That is the spirit of the age that says, I do as I please. God has no authority over me. God has no right or ability to tell me what to do. Moreover, the world system is also crooked and twisted. Philippians 2 says that we should be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world system is evil. It is opposed to Christ. In John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. If it doesn't get even more injurious, in Colossians chapter 2, we see that the world system, the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age is, is hollow and deceptive. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by 
philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Elemental spirits of the world, a phrase that Gordon Clark refers to as the, quote, axioms, presuppositions, or even the main tenets of false religion. Paul says, watch out, watch out. What's the contrast? The contrast to the zeitgeist is that we have been raised with Christ, Colossians says. That we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. People of the word, people of the book, people who are filled with the spirit, set their minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, where I am going, and he meant to heaven, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The Pharisees who have seething hearts, are distracted by worldly pursuits. But there's a fourth thing that emerges in verse 24. Look at it with me. Once again, Jesus re-emphasizes, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, that is, I am the Christ, you will die in your sins. The fourth mark of a seething heart, one that I see often, is that a seething heart decisively rejects Christ. A seething heart decisively rejects Christ. Now in verse 24, I want you to notice a very important word. Jesus says once again, you will die in your sins unless you, mark this word, believe. Unless you believe. That is a word that's translated from the Greek word that means not just to to see it and say, I believe it. In other words, I can say 2 plus 2 equals 4. That doesn't mean that I love math. I just know, I'm pretty sure, 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Anyone with me? Okay. But to believe something means you recognize it in your mind, you embrace it in your heart, And then you trust a person. You trust a person. The word means to think to be true, to believe, to trust, to have Christian faith. To believe means to cast all your hope exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And that's why Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Really what Jesus does is he he goes to the core of the problem here. In the last two weeks, we've looked at this core. The core of the problem, if you remember, that Jesus addresses is unbelief. John Piper addresses the sin of unbelief. He says this, unbelief is a turning away from God and his son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. You know, we tend to think, like in the Old Testament days, that the sin of idolatry involved bowing down to a golden calf, and certainly it did. We tend to think that idolatry involves bowing down to a, a stick or a stone or some, some 
pagan deity, and certainly it does. But in our culture, we see that idolatry has a, a, just a little different flavor. What we do is we bow down to our, our cars and our homes and our boats and our vacations and our money and our portfolios and 403B plans. We bow down to it all. And that's why Piper is on the money when he says unbelief is a turning away from God and his son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. He continues, every turning from God for anything presumes a kind of autonomy or independence that is the essence of pride. And the word of God speaks clearly to the, the man or the woman or the boy or the girl who is filled with pride. God turns his face away from the proud person. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who has existed from all eternity. The one who was born of the Virgin Mary. The one who was and is fully God and fully man. The one who perfectly kept the law. The one who died on the cross for sinners. The one who was raised again on the third day and made his ascent to the Father in heaven. And the plainest way I can say it this morning is this, is if you reject him, you will die in your sins. You say, but pastor, I'm a good person. If you reject Jesus, you will die in your sins. But pastor, you don't understand. There is another religion. I'm fascinated by it. You will die in your sins. But you don't get it. I give money to religious organizations. I give money to the United Way. I give money to help the orphans in Africa. Unless you believe in Jesus and cast all your hope exclusively in him, you will die in your sins. There's a fifth and final quality that we see that marks out a seething heart in verses 25 to 29. Let me read it for you. So the Pharisees said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true And I declare to the world what I heard from him. They did not understand that what he had been speaking to them about was the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see, a seething heart now, as these verses help explain, is disturbed by the claims of Christ. Have you met someone like this? Who does he think he is? How dare he say something that makes him equal with God? There is something that emerges here, and I I hope it impacted you the same way it did me. In verse 25. In verse 25, the Pharisees utter these words to Jesus. And I see them scratching their heads. Who are you? They are flabbergasted by these claims that Jesus is making. Drop down to verse 27. They did not understand 
that he had been speaking to them about the Father. That's the word gnosko, the word translated understand, which is a, a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. You see, they don't embrace his claims in the head, and they certainly don't embrace his claims in the hearts. What is it exactly that Jesus claims? I want you to notice in these verses the bold claims to deity. And Jesus really does it through the back door, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, hey, fellas, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. He does it in other ways. He says in verse 26 that he will judge. Another bold claim to deity in verse 28 is that he would be lifted up and then they will know who he really is. That is to say, he makes allusion to his work on the cross. He gets more bold in verse 29. He makes this bold claim to deity when he says that he has been sent by God. He has come down from heaven. He is now the God-man. He has been sent by God. Also in verse 29, he says the Father is with him. Who would have the audacity to say they have been sent by God and that God the Father is with him? What Jesus is saying is, gentlemen... You are looking at God in the flesh, and they know it when they say, who is he? And so a seething heart is disturbed by the claims of Christ. How many of you watch award shows? Grammys, uh, music awards, the movie awards. Every year it gets more frustrating for me. ESPY awards, whatever, sports. Here's what you see. Nine times out of ten, when the person gives thanks at the end, who do they thank? They thank God. God. Thank you, God. As they just got an award for singing a song about something totally ungodly. Thank you, God. And I always ask myself, I wonder which God they're referring to. They're referring to some Hindu deity? Are they referring to the Mormon God? They're referring to some idol? I am the Lord, Isaiah says, there is no other. Why is it that these entertainers and these athletes, why don't they do as Kurt Warner did several years ago when he won the championship with the St. Louis Rams and said, Thank you, Jesus! You know where Kurt Warner's coming from. He believes, he casts all his hope and future in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Jesus makes bold claims here to deity. And their question, who are you, reveals not only that they have darkened minds, but it reveals an utter rejection of Jesus Christ and his claims. And so, as we look at this a diagram this morning, the, the Pharisees disregard impending judgment. They are drowning, drowning rather, in self Righteousness. Their hearts are utterly distracted by worldly pursuits. They decisively reject Jesus and they are disturbed by his claims. All this is like a math problem for me. It all adds up to the Pharisees are men who have utterly seething hearts. And here's the shocking thing. Is their seething hearts in the the first century in this historical context, their seething hearts are on display inches away from the way, the truth and the life. Their seething hearts are on display for the Lord Jesus Christ 
as he gazes at them in their eyes. Their hearts greatly dishonor God. Their hearts greatly dishonor God. And their attitudes fail to magnify the greatness of the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it all mean for this today? What what does this mean for you and what does this mean for me? Here's the bottom line. Apart from grace, our hearts will seethe. Apart from grace, our hearts will be cold and defiant and indifferent. Apart from grace, our hearts will be indifferent to the gospel. Apart from grace, we will lack the ability to choose Jesus. I hear this all the time. How dare you tell me I don't have the ability to come to Jesus? You know the reason I say that so often is because that's what the Bible says. We lack the ability, apart from grace, to love God, worship God, serve God, like God. We not only can't love him, we can't like him. Apart from grace, we will be a carbon copy of these religious leaders, the Pharisees. Here's the truth point. This morning, if you have a seething heart, if you have a seething heart, you will die in your sins. And here is what the Pharisees totally missed. They failed to realize that the law is not a sufficient pathway to receive eternal life. You see, the Pharisees believed that they, if they crossed all their theological T's and dotted all their theological I's and, and kept all the laws, that they would merit favor in the eyes of God. They failed to see what so many people in our culture fails to see, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I fear that many people... I fear that thousands of people right here in our community and in the greater Bellingham area, that they believe that their good deeds will merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. They hope that faithful church attendance is that, that magic thing to check off that will merit favor in the eyes of God. They hope that good deeds will merit favor in the eyes of God. And every time God comes back with your works, Your so-called works of righteousness are like filthy rags. Jesus drilled this message into their brains that if you have a seething heart, you will die in your sins. Now, we have seen something this morning I think is fascinating. We have not only seen the symptoms of a seething heart, but I want you to see something that just, it just, it just drops on us. We're walking through verses 22 all the way through verse 29 and see all the marks of a seething heart. And then something happens. John the Apostle, as he writes in verse 30, says, As he was saying these things, these really terrible things about the the hearts who seethe, what do we read? Just out of the blue. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Wow. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Some of these rebellious people went from a seething heart to a saved heart in an instant. 12, 13 years ago, Doreen and I were in a Saturday evening service. 
And one of my best friends in the world, Pastor Wayne Pickens, was, was preaching the word of God. And he preached the gospel as he always did that evening. He never gave altar calls. But this one particular night, he said, if you're here and you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you need the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive all your sins, past, present, and future, if you're prepared to to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, I want you to stand right where you're seated. And I'll never forget it. It It makes the hair on my arm stand up about this high. I looked over and Jerrine looked over and there was a married couple. J.D. and Lisa, and at the same time, boom, they both stood. And we took them to dessert later in the week, and I remember asking J.D., J.D., did you know that Lisa was going to stand and trust Christ? He's like, I had no idea. I said, Lisa, did you know your husband was going to stand? She's like, I had no idea. I said, well, what's the explanation here? What's going on? This is a setup. I'm kidding. And they were both just like, "Um, we got saved. You know why that happened? Because God did it sovereignly. No human cunning, no act of rhetoric, no tricks, no awards, no gimmicks. It's believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One writer puts it this way. Belief, speaking of saving faith, belief is not merely an agreement with facts in the head. It also has an appetite for God in the heart, which fastens on to Jesus for satisfaction. Therefore, eternal life is not given to people who merely think Jesus is the Son of God. It is given to people who drink from Jesus as the Son of God. Faith is coming to Jesus and drinking the water and eating the food so that we find our hearts are satisfied in Him. John Piper rearticulated what Jonathan Edwards did so well in the 18th century by saying that it's more than seeing Jesus Christ. You say, I can see Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I, I, I believe that he's the God man. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. That's all in my head. Piper says this, it's seeing Jesus and it's savoring Jesus. I embrace the facts about Jesus. I embrace what, what the Gospels teach about Jesus and what the New Testament teaches about Jesus. But I am satisfied in Jesus. I savor Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so two questions we close with. Questions that are absolutely crucial. Do you have a seething heart? And the second question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Have you, have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus? Or are you like this man standing in front of the, the Baltimore Police Department, fist raised to the sky? This is the model of every unconverted person. You say, that's, a, that's offensive. I can't believe you'd say that about my my. Grandpa, my grandma, my friend, my husband, my wife, my child. It doesn't matter what the age or what the experience is. If you reject Jesus, your fist is raised to the sky. That is the portrait of the sinful, unconverted man in Romans chapter 3. And so as we close, there are only two options. 
There are only two options. You are either shaking your fist at Jesus or you are satisfied in Jesus. You have turned from your sins, which means to turn around from the wicked ways that you have been pursuing and march headlong towards the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I believe, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. I turn from my sins. I believe in your substitutionary death on the cross. I am satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. This morning, do you have a seething heart or do you have a saved heart? We join in prayer. Father, as we come uh, to the table of your son, uh, remembering to uh, partake of the, the bread and the juice until he comes, God, we're reminded of the importance of where we stand with you and acknowledging where we stand with you. We thank you for the story that shows uh, the qualities, the, the characteristics, the marks of a seething heart. And Lord, if, if church history tells us anything, if, an ex, if experience tells us anything, we recognize there are people here in this building today who have a heart that is seething. May you do a good work of grace. May you uh, draw someone to yourself today. God, I pray that your amazing grace would touch someone, that you would do a work of grace and that you uh, would receive the glory, that someone would leave with a saved heart as opposed to a heart that sees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we went for many, many weeks without a drummer. A horrible state of affairs. Horrible. And then we were blessed to have Tyler Silvis come back from Australia and join the worship team on drums. And now we've got Micah. Is right in the middle of one of the songs. Micah, my eyes were closed. And I was like, Micah. And I opened, there you were. <laughs> I could tell it was you. So it's great to have you back as well, Micah. Listen, two challenges uh, as we close. First of all, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you leave today thanking the triune God for the work of grace that he has performed in your life? And the second thing I would challenge you to do is to turn from any Pharisee-like behavior that has surfaced in your heart today. Are you drowning in self-righteousness? Are you, are you dabbling with the things of the world? Have you moved back in the realm of the Pharisees, the, the realm that you have been delivered from and set free from? Thank God for delivering you from the domain of darkness and turn from any sin that resembles the sin of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for today, uh, for the story that is... Um, had an impact on my life and hope it has on every person here. God, we pray for uh, young people today as uh, BJ and the Hanawells uh, return and pray that they would uh, have a, a safe trip back and an enjoyable trip back and ask that this would be a good week as we move forward uh, together, not only as a church family, but as members in this community, that we would, uh, whatever we would do, we would eat or drink all to the glory of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.